You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 verses 21 through 26 is where we're going to be. Now, last Sunday when we started this um, One Another's series, I told you there would be some weeks where we would sort of combine some of these one another statements from Scripture. And uh, so as you're turning to 1 Corinthians, I want you just to kind of make a mental note or, or maybe jot down somewhere these passages also, Galatians 5, 13 through 15, and 1 Peter 4, 9 through 11. Uh, Galatians 5, 13 through 15, 1 Peter 4, 9 through 11. We're not going to uh, address those today, um, but Tuesday or Wednesday, um, when the, the pastor's blog post hits our website, I'm going to address those two passages in conjunction with today's message, okay? Because uh, those two passages deal with serving one another, um, and, and I put the, the serving one another and the caring for one another that we're going to read about here in just a moment sort of in that same boat. So uh, you'll want to read those, you'll want to read those and study those on your own, and then I'll be providing insight to that um, through our weekly blog post um, that's on our, um, on our webpage. But today we're going to be primarily in 1 Corinthians 12, 21 through 26, as we talk about what it means to care for one another. I'm going to have Kenzie put an image up on the screen here before we get started. And uh, if you can't make it out, let me tell you what it is. It's an image of zebras and wildebeest. And you might think, well, what does zebras and wildebeest have to do with caring for one another or have to do with any kind of a scripture? Well, uh, as I was studying this week, one of the commentaries that I was looking through mentioned zebras and wildebeest and how they uh, partnered and got along. And so I started doing some more investigation to it and it's really very interesting in terms of how these two animals uh, get along with one another uh, in Africa. They they hang out together uh, all the time but they primarily and and most uh, pointedly hang out together in a time when what is called the great migration when the herds are traveling across Africa in search of food and water and so forth. Zebras have excellent eyesight And they have excellent navigational skills and memory. And primarily, they have excellent navigational skill and memory from previous trips. So if you're going on a great migration and you've got somebody along with you that remembers all the route you took last time, that's a good person to have around, isn't it? And so zebras have this excellent eyesight to, to look at for predators and so forth. They have this excellent skill of, of navigation and memory. Wildebeest can't see worth a lick, but they have excellent senses of smell and hearing. So where a zebra may not see a predator, a wildebeest can hear the predator or possibly smell the predator. They, they also have a unique ability to locate water up to 15 miles away. Again, if you're traveling across Africa and somebody's around that can locate water 15 miles away, that's a pretty good person to have around. Then the other thing that was interesting about them is both these animals are herbivores, meaning they eat the grasses of the lands, of the plains. But the zebra like the really tall grass and the wildebeest like the really short grass. So as they're going along, the zebra eat the tall grass down to a certain level, and then the wildebeest come in behind them, and they eat the short grass behind them. 
Now, why am I giving you this National Geographic spill today? Because the wildebeest and the zebra rely on one another for survival. They care for one another. And not only do they care for one another, but they care for one another in a very unique sense, a very unique way in that where one is deficient, the other is strong. Where one has a strength, they use it for the benefit of all. And as we talk today about what it means to care for one another, from Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians, uh, we have a lot that we can learn from groups like zebras and wildebeest and how they travel together. Uh, look, look at your neighbor to your left and say, be a zebra. Come on, come on, be participatory. Look to your neighbor to your right and say, be a wildebeest. Now, if, if, you, if you just called your wife a wildebeest, um, there'll be counseling available in the fellowship hall after the service today um, for a, a short amount of time. We have a lot to learn, and it'll help us to be zebras and wildebeest to one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 through 26. If you follow along with me, if you will. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. Our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. As we're going to talk today, Paul is using this terminology, he's using this imagery here in 1 Corinthians 12 of the human body to describe the body of Christ, that is the makeup of a local church. And so we're going to look at three things today coming out of these verses, specifically verses 24 and 25 today. And the first one is this, that it is God's intentional plan that these things occur this way. It is God's intentional plan. Look again at verse 24 uh, there at that second part. He said, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. What does the word, to, the word composed means? It means assembling from different and unique parts, assembling something into a unified whole. And Paul uses this kind of imagery, and really, if you want to look down at verse 27, we'll, we'll kind of see where he sums it up here. Uh, he says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So what Paul's really teaching here is that God has so composed the body of Christ to be different, to be unique, to have all these variations, but ultimately all are one in the body of Christ. And we're going to see a lot more of that understanding, that commonality as we go through today. In his book, Common Roots, Robert Weber wrote this, talking about Paul using the body as a metaphor. He said this, For this reason, membership in the body is not a casual joining of a group of people, but an incorporation into the body of Christ, the visible body of people here on earth who belong to him. 
Speaking about church membership, Weber said, we're, we're not just joining a group. We're not just joining a social club. We're not just, just paying our dues and getting in. It's bigger than this. God has so composed the local church to look like the human body where every piece is indispensable. And he's done this with purpose. And the unique and very distinct makeup of the church is vital to the life of the church. Imagine what a football team would look like if they were all quarterbacks. Or imagine how an orchestra might sound if they were all playing the violin. Or how well you would function uh, around your house in in the to-do list uh, if you had a toolbox consisting only of hammers. There are some things that could get done. A team made up of quarterbacks could accomplish a few things. A a group of just violinists could make some beautiful music, but nothing in comparison to what it sounds like when you have all of those different instruments playing in harmony together with one another. So God has composed this intentionally. And the church functions best when it functions together. I'm going to tie this back to last week a little bit. We talked about what it meant to be in harmony with one another, and that harmony is this word that means mindset or perspective. And so that mindset or that perspective is what really travels over and above all the rest of these one another's that we're going to look, that we'll look at over the next couple of months. That if, that if the church, if the body of Christ has the right perspective, if they have the right mindset, if they are committed to as a body who gets the glory and whose mission we're about and whose purpose we're trying to achieve, then things like caring for one another begin to come very naturally in that setting. And so the church functions best when it functions together. The church functions best when all are important. And again, this is God's intentional Plan. Look again at how he, how he words it there. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. What does it mean that it gives greater honor to the part that lacked it? Lacked it? Well, if you want to flip to your left to the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think Paul is continuing on a theme that he builds in chapter 1, beginning verse 26, for example. When he says this, Consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What Paul's saying there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and continuing in here when he talks about God giving honor is he's basically saying to everybody, consider who you were, consider where you were. You were not important to the world. You did not have a noble standard or stature. You were not considered wise, but God has bestowed upon you honor through Jesus Christ by bringing you into his kingdom. And so God does this intentionally. He composes the church in this way purposefully so that he might bestow honor where sometimes the world does not bestow any. In his book, A Fellowship of Difference, Scott McKnight talks about a study that was done, <clears throat> some, some research that was done into what did the first house churches of the New Testament look like? 
We know, we know they met in houses and generally, and we know that they gathered together there. But, but what, what was the makeup of it? And one individual has come up with this as a possibility. He said, likely within a house church existed a craft worker or two, and a craft worker would just be like a, what we would call a blue-collar worker today, and his family. Possibly within that house, there would be tenants who rented rooms from time to time, Possibly within this house church would have been both people who were servants, meaning indentured servants. Sometimes the Bible translates slavery or slaves, but it's, it's not forced slavery. It's slaves to pay off a debt in that fashion. But there would be both slaves, servants, and free people. Those who were on the outcast of society, the homeless, those who had diseases would have been welcomed into that New Testament church. Migrant workers who would have been traveling from one city to another and would have heard about the opportunity for a church meeting at a house would have been there. In short, it would have been Jew and Gentile alike from the elite to the outcast. And in that setting, this author just determines, honor was given to all. Nobody was raised up higher than the other. Nobody was, was given preferential treatment. Honor was given to all because God had so composed the body of Christ to where, as we read earlier, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, or the head to the foot, I don't need you. But all had a role to play. And Paul's teaching here, a crucial part of New Testament theology, and it is this, that community is made up of our commonality in Christ. True church community, true body of Christ community, is made up of what we have in common with one another through Jesus Christ more than anything else. And the other piece of this crucial theology is this, that in this there's no exceptionality for one person, but all are exceptional in Jesus. I mean, let me say that one again. There's no exceptionality for one person, There's, but all are exceptional in Jesus. This is God's intentional plan for the church, that we would be made up in this sense. So he has a plan. What is his goal? Look at verse 25 again. We'll come out of verse 24 to tie it together. But God has so composed the body, not just meaning the human body now, but the body of Christ, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. Some of your translations may use the word schism, but basically what Paul tells us here is that God had an intentional plan to make the church look like this, and part of his plan was that the goal would be there would be no division. What does it mean to have division in this sense? It, it, it means groups or cliques is what we might call it. But it's more than just a group or a clique. It's really uh, a groups that form within the body of Christ who are opposing to one another, who are either seeking to tear somebody down or build themselves up or get their way or whatever the case may be. And it usually shows up in what we would call a power struggle. And, and let me just say this very clearly. A power struggle in the church is a power struggle that robs the one person who truly has power in the church and that his name is Jesus. When humans fight for power in the church, we are robbing the king of the power that he has rightly deserved and paid for. And so Paul says God has done this here. He's put the church together in this way so that there would be no division in the body of Christ. This is a strange way to achieve unity, right? Because culturally, what would we say? Culturally, we would say, well, if you want to have unity, everybody needs to be the 
same. If you want to have unity, everybody needs to look alike. We need to think alike, talk alike, have the same ideas, same preferences. That, that's the way we, particularly in our age and time today, that's the way we typically form unity. I'm going to get a bunch of people who check all the boxes for me, and we're going to be unified. But what Paul has said is God's intentional plan was to take some who had honor, some who didn't, and put them all together under the same commonality in Jesus Christ, and to do so in such a way that there would be no division. Why? Because his intent for the church is for us to be unified and have that centered on Jesus, not on anything else. And so because that's his plan, he brings the difference together and puts them under this plan that God has put forth. Now, division was already present at the church at Corinth. This was not something that uh, they had been um, absent from. Reading from 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no division among you, but you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people, there is quarreling among you, my brothers, and what I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he goes on to talk about the fact that none of these human beings that these different groups were following and therefore in, in encouraging this struggle of power for in the church, none of those individuals died for them. None of those individuals gave their life for them as an individual or for the body of Christ as a church. And so there was division already present. In, in chapter 3, as he opens up chapter 3, he talks about the jealousy and the strife that existed within the church. In chapter 6, he talks about the fact that apparently they're having lawsuits among one another. Un unavailable to settle their differences without taking their differences outside of the church body to a worldly court. And so all this division has already happened. And Paul's writing here not only to heal current division but also to prevent future division. And the way he does it is he says this was God's plan. God's plan was to bring a bunch of you people who have differences, who don't look, a lot, don't look the same, don't live the same, maybe don't have the same social standing, maybe don't have the same economic standing. He was, his plan was to bring you together and to do it in such a way where you come under Christ so that there would be no division. Now, it's important for us to, to make this point today. There's, there's, there's a difference between difference and division. It's okay to be different. Sometimes people think well, for us to be no division, we all have to have unity, again, where we look like this you know, kind of homogenous unit where everybody is just the same. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul's writing, and he's writing about this glorious gift that we have in Christ. And in verse 28, he says, For now there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no male, there's no female, there's no slave or free person, but all of you are one together in Jesus Christ. Now when Paul wrote that, when the church at Galatia received it, did that mean that in that moment the Jew stopped being a Jew and stopped th thinking about his Jewish heritage and his Jewish traditions and the Jewish foods that he loved? Did, did the Greek just automatically throw away everything that was important to him from his culture and, and start taking on everything of the Jew? Did, did the male and the female, did they swap roles or did they take on some kind of genderless role and, and stop being male or female? No. 
Paul's intent with writing that was not that any of that would happen, but Paul's intent with writing in Galatians 3 and then here again in 1 Corinthians 12 is to get them to understand the commonality that they shared. The thing that united them was Jesus. And the commonality that they shared is greater than the things that divide them. So where they have differences and where differences can become divisive, we who are in Christ are supposed to override those things and go back to, revert back to our commonality in Christ that there would be no division. Differences exist and they are good. Division does not have to. Now, I think differences lead to division on a couple points. Number one, they, ha- they lead to division when we do not respect differences in each other. When, when, when you, you have a difference with someone, when you, there's, there's something that you just don't see eye to eye on or, or something maybe you don't understand about one another, uh, if we respect one another, if we take time to sit down and talk with one another, have a cup of coffee, invite over for a meal, something along those lines, then we can typically sort of weed through all that maybe we think we know about what they, who they are, what they believe, or what they think about a certain situation. But far too often, we don't have that today. Far too often, oh, there's a difference? Well, I'm just rejecting that person. And we don't respect the difference that they have. We don't take time to talk about it with them. Secondly, and kind of as a result from number one, then we allow our differences to be, quote, hills that we die on. Oh, you and I are different in this? All right, well, if if this doesn't change, I'm done. I'm out. I I can't be in a relationship with you one-on-one, individually, corporately, together. Those differences become hills that we die on. Now, let me say this before I get to point number three. I'm not talking about theological differences here. There are theological issues that we cannot be different on. If your theological perspective is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, but he just kind of fainted and they kind of put him in the tomb and they came back and got him later and he didn't really resurrect we're going to be divided. Now, we can still be divided respectfully, and we can still have conversations with one another in a way where we try to find common ground with one another and then bring, uh, bring a truth to that. But yeah, if theologically we have those issues, then that's going to be tough for us to have commonality in. But then there are some theological issues that it's perfectly fine for us to be in the same boat Third Thursday Theology is coming up this week, and, and actually what we're going to do for this month and next month is really kind of a two-part deal because we're going to talk about the end times. We're going to talk about what the Bible teaches us about the end times, and I'm going to tell you this as a, as a precursor. There are four views on end times theology, and all four of them have scriptural support. But what we're going to talk about over the next two months in our third Thursday theology classes is here are the four views. You can let the Holy Spirit lead you to where you want to be on that. But guess what? If you think that you're going to get raptured before the tribulation and the person next to you thinks you're going to get raptured after the tribulation, that's okay because it's all in the same scripture. That's a theological difference we can get behind with one another. But there are some that we can't. But typically these differences that lead to division are not theological divisions. They're personal preferences. We don't respect them in one another. We make them hills that we die on. And then thirdly, differences become division because of this. In this, we do not embrace our commonality in Christ as the sole means of our mission and our purpose. 
We don't embrace the commonality of Christ and what he has done for us and who he is and what now the Spirit of God does for us and the Word of God that leads us to truth. It does not become the sole means of our mission and our purpose. What becomes the sole means of a mission and purpose of the church often comes back to preferential understanding. This is the way we've always done it. This is the way these people like to do it, and they've been here the longest. When what should drive us is understanding who Jesus is and where all of our places are in him, and then what does that mean for our mission and our purpose, meaning how do we do, go about bringing the kingdom? And where we have that as our commonality, then there will be no division. So it's God's intentional plan. His goal is there will be no division. Thirdly, then, verse 25, we have a role and a responsibility here. I'm going to come out of verse 24 again just to put it all together. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. God planned it. God set the goal. Now we're to pursue it. I think this is so neat, and you might not think this is neat, and if you don't, then I'm sorry for wasting the next two minutes of your time. Back in August, we had that short prayer series, and one of the Sundays we looked at Philippians 4 and talked about how praying when we're anxious and letting the peace of God uh, change us and so forth, and, and I didn't dive into it deep when we did that Sunday, but in Philippians 4, 6, it says, do not be anxious about anything. And that Greek word for be anxious is a word that means to have a strong care or burden. And so in Philippians 4, Paul says, don't, don't have a strong care, don't be burdened with anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, present yourself to the Lord, and the peace of God will surpass all your understanding. Here in verse 25, when Paul says that we ought to have the same care for one another, he's using that same Greek word. In other words, he's using a word that was used in, in, in Philippians in a very negative sense, but now he's using it in a very positive sense. There he was saying, don't have any care or burden for anything that weighs you down, but give your whole life over to the Lord. But now he says, have a care, have a burden for one another. And, it, and it's, this, it's this unique sort of almost confusing thing sometimes, Right? Tonight, we're going to be in Luke 12 tonight as part of our Bible study, and we're going to look at the passage in Luke where Jesus says things like, don't be anxious about what you eat, what you drink, uh, about your life, about your clothing. Same Greek word, don't be anxious. First Peter, First Peter 5, 7, Peter says, cast all your anxieties, same word for anxieties, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But right here smack dab in the middle in 1 Corinthians 12 of Jesus' words and Peter's words is Paul saying, have some anxiety, <laughs> have some care, have some burden for one another. Why, why, why would Paul use this? Why would this word be used in this sense? Contextually, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is writing on spiritual gifts. That's how 1 Corinthians 12 begins. The spiritual gifts that the Spirit of God has bestowed upon his people. And in that, he moves into that human body imagery as a metaphor. The eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you. The head can't say to the foot, I don't need you. And he's teaching that. He's using that to help us understand that every part of the human body plays an important role. So it's in the same context here of, of spiritual gifts that Paul is now saying every person in the body of Christ plays an important role. 
Just as the eye cannot dismiss the ear on the human body, neither can we in the body of Christ dismiss someone else for not having the same spiritual gift that we might possess or for not utilizing the same spiritual gift that we have. Everyone has a role and a strength, and everyone is needed to provide care for, to have an anxiety for, in a positive way, a burden for one another. The person who is spiritually gifted in mercy is uniquely qualified to dispense mercy. That's the person you want making hospital visits. Right? The person gifted in teaching is uniquely qualified to take God's word and teach it and lead it in application. That's who you want teaching small groups and Sunday school groups. The person gifted in faith is uniquely gifted to lead and challenge others in growing their faith and to believing that God will act. That's who you want for building campaigns, right? And it's understanding that the care, the concern, or the burden that Paul's talking about here, God has so composed the church body in this way where he's taken this bunch of misfits, this bunch of difference, and put us all together that the goal might be no division, but that the secondary goal then is that we might have care and concern and burden for one another. What am I, what are you uniquely gifted by God to do for the church? It harkens back to John F. Kennedy's inaugural address, right? Some of you will know that phrase I'm getting ready to say, where he said to the American people, ask not what you can do for, or what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Too often in our day, church is met with this sort of understanding. What are you going to provide me? What, what am I going to get out of joining your church? What programs do you have to offer? What ministries do you have to offer? And all those things are important. All those things are part of discipleship and fellowship and understanding. But when we approach church, when we approach coming in the body of Christ in that manner, we're, we're behind the eight ball from the outset. Because when we approach it in that way, what we're really doing is we're saying, okay, well, if you entice me with this, if you ever stop that, I'm out. And that is not Paul's intent here in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul's intent here in 1 Corinthians 12 is to say because you are uniquely gifted, because you are uniquely empowered in the body of Christ, what is it that you can do for the body of Christ? I, I think we see this very easily in our lives when we're not talking about spiritual giftedness, to be honest with you. In other words, I see, you know, I, I, know, I know nothing of woodworking, right? And had to get a door hung on my on the garage not too long ago and Ed came by and he he pulled out a, a bag that had like 92 wood chisels you know and I didn't know they made that many different kinds right and 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 I provided the grunt labor and he provided the expertise right it's easy for us to sometimes see how God has empowered us and gifted us in those senses right where one person has a care or a burden or a need and we provide it um, I, I live next door to Don Heimer. Uh, Don has a greater inventory than Rural King, Tractor Supply, and uh, Walmart all put together, right? If you need it, he's got it. Now, I'll tell you a little secret. I get really nervous when I borrow stuff from Don because I don't want to break it. But he's very, he's very generous when I do and doesn't throttle me. But right, we, we see that very easily, don't we? Oh, yeah, somebody has a need, somebody has a care, concern. I have this, they need this. 
They, they have this in their life. I can provide it. We see that very easily. I don't know that we see it very easily with our spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. And here's why. Number one, most people are not aware of their spiritual gifts. Most people are not aware that the Spirit has uniquely empowered them, gifted them in more than one way, usually, to serve uniquely in the body of Christ. And so they just kind of float along, and they either never serve, or sometimes they serve in the wrong positions, right? Which is kind of the second point. We don't provide really good opportunities for people to serve in the way their spiritual gifts are constructed. And if you've ever served in a church ministry and it wasn't your spiritual gift, I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts that was your last time serving. Because when you serve somewhere and it doesn't match up who God's made you to be, it's not a fun experience. And the next time somebody comes knocking on the door and says, hey, can you serve in this, in this particular department or this particular way? You're like, mm-mm, nope, mm-mm. Been there, done that, got that t-shirt, not going back. So most of the time we don't know our spiritual gifts. Secondly, sometimes we don't do a, a good job matching people to spiritual gifts. Thirdly, and this is probably the most damaging, is that sometimes we have a perspective that certain spiritual gifts are more important than others. Can I tell you something? Those ladies that sit back in that nursery every week, that are never in here, but are there to love on babies that might come and need a place on Sunday morning, they are every bit as important, if not more, than me. We we hold people and positions and positions within the church in this high regard and these are the folks that really get things done and what Paul is saying here is that God has so composed the body that he does not allow us to do that. That he does not allow us to take the spiritual giftedness or the leanings or the way God has made us and go, well, these people are on this tier and then you got some folks here and there's some folks down here and I, I will tell you in every church I've been in, without the folks that we sometimes put down here, church wouldn't happen. For years, I was part of churches as church plants that we unloaded trailers and unloaded cars every Sunday morning and loaded them back up every Sunday afternoon. And if it were not for the people who never got their name recognized, who never were on the stage, who never understood, nobody ever understood that they were the ones that got up at 6.30 in the morning to load everything and got home at 2 o'clock in the afternoon because they had to load everything back, church wouldn't have happened. Just because we don't do that here, just because we have an established church here where we're not having to load and unload, doesn't make any difference. God has so composed the body that there are no spiritual gifts that are more important than the others. And I will tell you, when, when, when a church gets that, when the body of Christ recognizes that, when the body of Christ says to those who maybe over some time have felt Less important? No, you are so, so very important. Then the church sees change. Because now everyone is appreciated. Everyone understands. Paul says it in that phrase, that we are to have the same care for one another. Not a greater level of care for one than another. Not a greater level of care for one position than another. Not a greater level of honor from one position to another. Not a greater level of respect for one person than another. The same care for all who are in the body of Christ. 
I'll close today with this. Tom Rayner works for Lifeway. He's been a pastor. He's been with Lifeway, the Southern Baptist Convention um, group that provides curriculum and training and all sorts of different things. He's been with them for a number of years. He's got a, an, a really neat, small little book called I Am a Church Member, and the subheading of it is Discovering the Attitude That Makes the Difference. Um, I, I would really encourage you, if you've not ever read this, find a copy and, and pick it up and read it. He writes this when he, he's, he's using this passage from 1 Corinthians 12 that we've just been in. And he writes this, and he's, he's, he's painting a picture, the difference between what it means to join a social club and what it means to be a vital part of the church. With a country club membership, you pay others to do the work for you. With church membership, everyone has a role or a function. That's why some are hands and feet and ears and eyes. We are all different, but we are all necessary parts of the whole. Each part, therefore, has to do its work, or the whole body suffers. There's beautiful diversity in the midst of unity in church membership. I, I love that phrase. I'm going to say it again. There is beautiful diversity in the midst of unity in church membership. He goes on, the Bible makes it clear if one part does not do its job, the whole body does not function well. But if one part does its job well, the whole body rejoices and is stronger. God's plan, God's intentional plan for the church to look the way it does full of different people, from different backgrounds, from different ethnicities, from different uh, social statuses, some with testimonies that go far as, as far back as five years old saying all I ever knew was Jesus, some who have testimonies that say I was 35 and Jesus gripped me from the, hand, from the hands of sin. God's intentional plan, his goal for no division but unity, commonality in Christ and our role and responsibility that we would care for one another equally. If a church gets that, you know how God will bless that church? When the overarching mission and purpose of the church is not anything that I want or you want or that we think the church should offer us, but instead is just simply your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's the church God will bless. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.